I met my co-founder on Reddit. <laughs> um, had never used Reddit before. My dad had told me one day that all of the beautiful sunsets in Vegas, the sunrises, are only that beautiful because of pollution and because of the wildfire smoke in the summer. You're listening to Curious Minds, a podcast aimed at the next generation of aspiring young entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers. We release new episodes every month discussing career insights, entrepreneurship, and the most exciting emerging technologies today. As always, we're your co-hosts, Jula and Beatrice. Yep, and today we got Valkyrie Holmes joining us. She's currently on her second gap year building Fora, a marketplace that aims to connect private landowners and forest tenders to enhance forest management and provide further funding for organizations protecting their forests. She has worked at several other companies like SpaceX, Inflow, NASA, and more, and has been working in the wildfire and sustainability space for the last two years. She is a TKS alumni and a current 776 fellow in the newest batch of Climate Fellows, solving a wide range of issues worldwide. Awesome. Yeah, so to jump right in, first off, would you mind telling us about how you got started in the space and what really led you to be passionate in the field of wildfires and engineering as well? Yeah, so I mean, if you would have told me, you know, three years ago, if I would have been into anything engineering, anything entrepreneurship, anything that wasn't just like sitting in a lab and doing chemistry work, um, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, I really didn't think that I would be into engineering or startups or anything. Um, And I think a big part of it was just I was not confident in my abilities at all. Like I grew up in a very education-centric household, but I also grew up in Vegas where the education system uh, does not really do you any favors in terms of setting you up for success. Uh, So I think I was kind of just like floating along for a long time. And then I joined TKS, uh, and I think that really catapulted a lot for me. But in terms of uh, the climate space and more like the fire aspect, I was doing this uh, like TKS mindset hackathon. It was like a moonshot hackathon. And we stumbled upon this research paper that was talking about fighting wildfires with vortex cannons, or like basically fighting fires with sound. And we were looking into it, and I thought it sounded pretty cool. And at that point, I kind of uh, did a few little engineering um, like internships here and there, but I wasn't fully set on anything. And I remembered uh, as we were researching wildfire that my dad had told me one day that all of the beautiful sunsets in Vegas, the sunrises, are only that beautiful because of pollution and because of the wildfire smoke in the summer. Um, and so slowly things started to connect and I kind of just got roped up and sort of like went down this rabbit hole of, dang, like we really don't know that much about wildfire, um, or fire or climate or anything like that. And ever since then, that was about two and a half years ago. Um, ever since then I've been, I guess the wildfire girl, (laughs) um, for at least two TKS kids, um, as of then. That's amazing. And, you know, you're really right. We we really don't know that much about wildfires. Like we don't have enough data. So it's it's really, really amazing that there are people like you out there who are actually, you know, focused on finding out what exactly causes a wildfire, right? And what's the most prominent mm-hmm. cause and how we can solve that issue and like nip it in the bud. 
Um, for our listeners, you're currently the co-founder of Fora, a startup that's heavily focused around the prevention specifically of wildfires. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about why you're targeting wildfires specifically and also why you're working on prevention as opposed to extinguishing active wildfires? Yeah, yeah. So uh, when I originally started like the hackathon and got into the wildfire space, I was on the extinguishing side. I, I was working on a startup called Project Firefly, and it was basically... Me trying to, uh, me and my, my co-founder, uh, Jesse, uh, trying to use drone technology in collaboration with Vortex Cannons, which we were doing this with another company at the time, um, to better contain wildfires. So it was about getting people off of the front lines and making it easier to fight massive megafires. Um, and we were doing that. And then the more that you look into wildfire and the more that you continuously uh, kind of like dive into the people aspect, the more that you realize that we're not really funneling money into prevention. And it sounds, it seems a little backwards, right? Like it, like we should be spending a lot more time on actually preventing the wildfires from happening in the first place than all of the resources that it takes to fight them, especially when we have so many people living in these areas now. And so a couple things went wrong with the kind of like pilots that we were working on, um, wrong just like logistically. And then we kind of had the opportunity to pivot and we became 776 fellows. Um, and for those of you who don't know about 776, it's basically a climate foundation that funds you for two years to uh, work on a climate project full-time. Uh, and so we, we kind of just took the leap and went to prevention. Um, and we were kind of leading that way anyways because of the research we were doing. Uh, and so that's kind of like on the prevention side, why we're there is just, there's not uh, as much resources, there's not as many resources dedicated to it. Or it's there's a lot of resources dedicated to it, and they have no way to actually funnel down to the people. I'd say that's the biggest thing. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting switch from the front lines to kind of the back end prevention. I think you're really able to dive into like the root problem to tackle this issue, which is really crucial. Um, and switching topics a bit, a really big and important part of having a successful company is knowing how to choose your co-founder. How did you meet your co-founder at Fora and was that experience unconventional in any way as opposed to like a traditional way to find a co-founder? Yeah, so um, it, it definitely is a funny story. I met my co-founder on Reddit, <laughs> um, had never used Reddit before. Uh, I basically had gone on a lot of just very traditional like co-founder sites. I went on like YC Match. There's a couple different websites that I'm that I'm blanking on at the moment that you can find just like different communities on. And then through those communities, you can basically just uh, post about projects you're working on and kind of ask for a co-founder um, or ask if anyone's interested. I reached out on my social network. You know, I, I basically went every traditional way um, to find a co-founder. And then... My boyfriend suggested that I like take to more like less traditional media, uh, like social media. He was like, you know, the founders of Coinbase met on Reddit. Like, you should just go on Reddit. And so I made an account, and um, you know, I I think most people on Reddit are like pretty anonymous. Uh, they don't put their name or face to anything. But I didn't really know that. You know, I just made an account with my name and face, and posted to the wildfires subreddit. And my co-founder, her name is Amanda Southworth, uh, she messaged me and was like, hey, 
I I don't know if I want to join, but I would love to help you figure this out. And then I uh, got on a call with her. We called for like maybe like two or three hours uh, longer than we anticipated. And I got off the call and I called my boyfriend and I was like, this is the woman I've been waiting for. Like, like where has she been all my life? Um, so yeah, Reddit. Um, and it's, it's just very, very serendipitous in that way because I, she had joined the group maybe two weeks before I posted. So everything kind of lines up. Um, and she's awesome. I think we complement each other very well. And I could not imagine building this company with anyone else. So Oh, that's that's immensely heartwarming. And it's it's crazy that those two timelines lined up almost perfectly for you guys to meet, right? Like that's a mm-hmm. that's a really serendipitous moment. Like you you put it really well. Um, do you think that there's a specific trait that you saw on your co-founder that, you know, once you found out about this one thing that she did, you're like, okay, this is the one, like a specific moment or a specific way of doing things or just a specific thing about her that you knew like your your founder or your your co-founder was going to do amazing things with you? I mean, I think it was two big things. Actually, no, it was three big things. One of them was I wanted to find someone that had a really personal connection with Wildfire. You know, like for me, I have more of a personal connection, you know, since looking into it because I live in Vegas and Vegas is a valley. And every summer when all the smoke comes up from California and all the surrounding states that smoke settles in the valley and yeah you can look up and see beautiful sunsets but I now know that that's also just like crazy amount of like smoke and air pollution that's affecting the people that I directly care about right my dad works in the valley my sisters go to school in the valley and so I wanted someone else that had a personal connection and she grew up in the San Bernardino mountains they're uh, notorious for heavy wildfire seasons Um, And her dad had a newspaper business that uh, was kind of like shut down by a lot of the wildfire activity. There was a lot that she had to go through. And it's also the fact that like everywhere she's lived on the West Coast has had a wildfire issue. (laughs) So she's been exposed to it for a long time and like just really gets it. And so I was looking for something like that. And then also the fact that she's been building software that like is aimed to help people for a long time like like ever since she was a teenager and I just really value that and you know she has a nonprofit called Astro Labs that basically builds software for nonprofits and like help gives resources to uh people that are in really stressful like potentially abusive situations you know so a lot of her work has surrounded like helping people that are like truly in need, identifying a need and solving it. So I knew that that was like light bulb moment where I was, I was just very convinced that, you know, her heart was in the right place. It wasn't all about like, how do we make money off of wildfire? Cause I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of avenues you could take um, in terms of trying to go that way. And then the last thing is just that she's like, like just lovely to talk to. <laughs> um, she really is just like very, like I said, she compliments me. I I think I'm blunt where she's like more open and vice versa. And we're both kind of just like very quirky. I think that's like a funny word to say now because it's like very, um, I don't know, like TikTok-y, like that kind of word, but, but it really is. It's just like, it's just like fun being co-founders and we can like figure everything out like adults, but also just like have fun, like 
you know, we are young adults. <laughs> so yeah, that's amazing. Your co-founder is definitely like really important because how you work together or like how you complement each other can make or break the bond. So that's really great to hear. And now switching gears a little, on a call, you mentioned cold outreach was really beneficial and you wish you would have known that when you first started. What are some strategies you could give to our listeners in terms of what they could do to actually find their target customers' contacts and how to call them, etc.? Yeah, yeah. So I kind of got into more of like the cold outreach um, kind of thing late last year, early this year, um, in terms of like cold calling specifically. I know I'm like, I made a post on that um, fairly recently. I'm, I'm trying the LinkedIn influencer um, kind of craze right now. Uh, but in terms of cold outreach, yeah, it's basically, um, I was doing a lot of research and there's a lot of just like very dense information uh, that changes from website to website, from county to county in terms of wildfire prevention. Even though the bulk of it is the same, there's different rules and regulations and policy and all that stuff. Um, and so it really just helped to cut through everything and call the people that were in charge. And that's really how we found our first pilot customers was just me calling a bunch of these like wineries in Napa and saying like, hey, do you have a wildfire issue? And like, what have you done to solve it? And I think the interesting thing is no matter what demographic you're in, there are good people that want to, that if, if it's a problem that they care about, they want to solve it. And even if it's a problem they don't care about, they're willing to talk about it if it's something that like directly affects them. And maybe you teach them something, maybe you figure out that your idea doesn't work. You know, um, I've probably reread the mom test about like 20 times at this point um but that it kind of touches on this a lot is like you design questions surrounding your outreach that either like prove certain aspects of your solution or disprove the main like hole of your solution so i would say like cold calling is a big thing i got maybe five days of information in like a couple hours (laughs) as opposed to just like researching online um than I did you know any other time um so it was really just effective in terms of like how to call people uh wildfire was an interesting thing because there's a lot of nonprofit organizations that kind of just put their numbers on websites there's also a lot of people um that I reached out to on a site called next door uh that if you like message them and you say, Hey, like I have a few questions. If there's any way, like then maybe I can send them to you or we can hop on a call. People are usually pretty willing to have a 15 minute conversation. Um, be courteous of their time, obviously. But, but yeah, like I, I try to lead with the fact that when you're doing outreach and you're asking questions and you're trying to validate a, uh, a customer's contacts, um, you know, people want to talk about their issues and they want to find solutions and if they really want to find a solution, um, then you're targeting the right problem. That's true. And I, I can definitely say that a lot of people lately, like even if you reach out to them on LinkedIn, like that's how we got you for the podcast, right? So <laughs> people are definitely a lot more generous than they seem. Mm-hmm. Now, this next one is a bit of a loaded question. Um, mm-hmm. But how do you deal with rejection? And that could be across all domains, like maybe nobody's answering your calls or there was a big hole that was just poked in like your plan or 
you know, just generally when you're at a really low point with the startup, is there a specific framework that you use to like work around that? Or is it just like, you know, getting up and persevering over and over again? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I've been like, I, I guess like struggling with that idea. For for the longest time, I have had this kind of um opinion that, you know, like everything will work out. I'm very optimistic, like overly optimistic. Um, and not to say that I'm not that anymore, but I think I've shifted gears in terms of like, instead of like, everything's going to work out exactly how I planned it, or exactly how it should be, but kind of how I planned it, you know, I focus more on the fact that like, there's no alternative than for a version of this to not work, which means that I have to work to make that a reality. I think the first train of thought, the first school of thought you know, I acknowledge this every time I say it, but it, it does come from a place of privilege and it comes from, you know, me having access to things that I know a lot of other people don't have in terms of thinking that everything will positively work <laughs> uh, all the time. And in startups, it definitely isn't that, you know, like we run into uh, trouble with our pilots and like things being slower and we're like doing a bunch of experiments right now in terms of like trying to figure out what works for different target customers um and a lot of that like sometimes you feel like everything is moving too fast and it's overwhelming and then like other times you feel like it's it's moving so slow and you feel like it's failing (laughs) and you know early stage startups aren't going to have product market fit until a little bit down the line so we're still trying to find that but it is it is a big thing. So I think your school of thought really helps um, in terms of something along the lines of, you know, like, I'm I'm going to make this work uh, because there's no alternative. Or at least that's what I use. I know it's going to be different for everyone. Uh, but it's also just about the consistency. You know, you, you hear all those, like, um, those audios on social media of, like, you know, you're going to work out, you're going to do crunches uh, 30 minutes a day, and then you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to see nothing. And then you're going to do it the next day and you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to see nothing. Um, and it really is the case. Like, we we see nothing for so long and then we get something that's like, oh, yeah, we made money today. Um, and we're, we have this thing that's working. Um, and then the next day it feels like it's not. <laughs> um, so it is just about the consistency, waking up, like having things that you know at least for the week will push you forward a little bit and then kind of going with that. I don't know if that answers the question, but I hope it does. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely like a lot of ups and downs as an entrepreneur. And talking about these challenges and barriers, what are some of the biggest challenges you've ever faced with Flora or any of your past startups and how did you overcome them? Yeah, um, so I guess like I can start with Firefly. The biggest thing with uh, like wildfire suppression technology, and I want to stress that we were more on like the pilot side, right? Like we, um, we were working with another company and like the biggest thing is that because we were you know so young but like still involved with like the technology um we were kind of just like along for the ride in terms of their schedule which obviously is like we're we're at their every whim basically like if if they need something today versus like what normally happened was they needed something a month from now and you would work that month and then they need something another month from now but it'd just be so slow um and that's just kind of the nature of um how they worked you know it's kind of 
there's a lot of rules and regulations when it comes to testing for wildfire technology and like uh, uh, prescribed burns and things like that. So with the other company, it was just it was just so slow. And I, you know, we didn't feel like it was moving in a direction that would benefit us <laughs> um, long term. And then uh, the, the biggest thing with Fora is just we originally started off in the like more community-based, like HOA-level wildfire prevention, right? Um, there's this thing called defensible space. And defensible space is basically just the area that surrounds your house or any building or structure that you've kind of mitigated wildfire risk on. So like taking out trees, making the roof more fire resistant, things like that. That's what you would call your defensible space. And that really only works, uh, especially in neighborhoods, if large groups are doing them. And so we we were like, oh, yeah, like that makes sense. Let's go to HOAs. Let's go to like property managers. But that also is just so political and slow. <laughs> um, so we have a bunch of pilots going on um, right now within that. But it, it pains painful how slow it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of things that we're like trying to do to speed it up and like, like that's why we're doing a bunch of experiments to test different avenues a little, bit, a little bit but the biggest thing is when you're working in climate expect it to be slow but if it's too slow like try to find different avenues to to kind of go down mm-hmm, I totally get that and how do you deal with these problems do you like have a process you follow or is there anyone you lean on for support when you were having trouble solving a problem or overcoming an obstacle? Mm, um, I mean, I, I would say that that's like a big part of like having a good co-founder is being able to talk out the problems that you feel like are, are popping up. You know, I, again, I think it's like good to have a co-founder that um, compliments how you think a little bit. Uh, and so when I'm like the things that I'm nervous about, um, my co-founder usually isn't. Um, when we're both nervous about something, we can usually kind of like point out various things to each other in terms of like why it should be the case or like why we should prepare for different things. So I would say definitely my co-founder. Um, and like, honestly, I have a pretty large, uh, you know, I'm grateful for this like startup network of people that like, I know if I'm having a problem with this little thing um, that I know someone in TKS or someone in, you know, like my uh, 776 group chat has dealt with, I can just shoot a question and get a bunch of feedback. And that's really like the beautiful thing about being in all these communities is, you know, you have people that genuinely care about your success and care about other startups and like them working or, or all like all those things. Uh, so it's definitely, um, I would say like leaning on my communities, leaning on my um kind of like co-founder going back and forth and then you know my boyfriend is also in startups so he's a little bit further than we are and it helps to kind of just bounce ideas off of him sometimes um he's in like the finance like fintech space so uh very different (laughs) but you know a lot of the same things apply if you could change one thing about how we as a society react to wildfires what would it be um this can be politically or in terms of how we prepare for these disasters or you know even how we try to clean up the damage of these events afterwards just what's one thing that you felt you know it just doesn't sit right I wish that the um I forget what exactly the word is um but the forgetfulness wasn't as strong when wildfire season isn't around um I wish there was more to reinforce the fact that 
even if it's winter, like, like there, there are still things that you have to be preparing for as soon as the snow melts, you know, uh, a big thing that we've seen in a lot of these communities is when it's, uh, kind of getting out of wildfire season, like more around, um, like end of October into early November, and then from that point to maybe like January, February, people kind of forget that wildfire happens in their area, right? And like they shouldn't be thinking about it, right? That they cause everyone so much distress. Um, but I think because they stop thinking about it, they stop preparing and they stop, you know, like setting up, setting themselves up for success for the next wildfire season. And we have to remember that wildfire season now is half the year in a lot of areas. Like, it literally starts in May, ends in November, or, you know, whatever. I don't know if that's six months or um, But, you know, it's it's half the year. And so, like, there's a big chunk of the year that you don't have to think about it. But it's still a chunk that you should be at least, like, having preparation in. Um and, you know, people go into maybe March or April and all of a sudden are like, oh, yeah, wildfire does exist. Um, and they scramble to get all of this work done um, on their property, like cutting down brush and limbing up trees and things like that to make their property more fire resistant. Um, and then other people just forget, like, completely. And then a fire kind of blows through the neighborhood and they lose their home and it's because they didn't plan properly before. And, you know, I don't blame people. Like, it's a really stressful thing. A lot of people get kind of um, decision paralysis from having all these resources. And that's kind of what Fora is trying to solve, is trying to make it a very straightforward process. Like, boom, boom, boom. Here's the assessment. Here's what you need to do. Um, here are the people you contact. And and this is it. And, the, and the, this is automated from here on out. Um, because people are, you know, we're bound to make mistakes. And we continue to make mistakes because there isn't a process in place so i would say that's the biggest thing in terms of wildfires people forget that they exist until summer comes around and then and then they're all screwed and obviously we're in a huge wildfire crisis right now so would you mind giving the audience a brief history and some insights on what we can do to mitigate this issue yeah absolutely um yeah so i'll give like a quick uh kind of like history lesson around wildfire um when i say wildfire mitigation work it means essentially undoing a lot of the work that uh, the government has put in place uh, over about 100 years, uh, over 100 years. Um, and what I mean by that is back in 1910, the early um, 20th century, we had this big fire called Big Burn. Um, and I'm, I believe it was like Montana area, um, kind of like Midwest into the West. And it burned maybe like 3 million acres killed a couple hundred people and it was like the biggest wildfire of the time and you know we the world has wildfires all the time like the world is consistently trying to renew its forests and it does that by burning fuel on the ground and fuel can be anything from leaves to like sticks to like entire dead trees that are still trying to take up water so it's inherently good for the forest to have uh, a few like mini wildfires or even large wildfires to to clear out a lot of that brush that, that keeps the forest um, unhealthy. So those have been happening for, you know, like since the world began. Um, but the only problem now is that people live there. People live in these forests. Um, so wildfires happen and they kill people. And all of a sudden the government said, oh, yeah, this is an issue. <laughs> um, we have to do something about this. 
So they uh, basically put a bunch of capital into this issue. Uh, they put a bunch of manpower behind it. They had this slogan that was, uh, I believe it was, uh, no wildfires um, after 10 a.m. So the goal was to get all wildfires extinguished by 10 a.m. Um, and it worked. You know, like we were able to expand into the West. We didn't really have too much of an issue with wildfire because firefighters were there to stop it. Uh, we, you know, created the fire truck. We put a shit ton of water into it. And it was kind of just, you know, it, it worked. It was a system that worked. Uh, but fast forward to now, um, specifically 2017, and when it uh, really came to a lot of our attentions, is a lot of that fuel that would have been previously burnt up in uh, smaller wildfires in the forests has been built up over hundreds of years um, that hasn't gotten a chance to uh, burn. And so now we have these forests that are just packed to the brim. When you think of a forest, you know, like you you think of these lush trees packed together. It's a beautiful site, whatever. But that's not how forests are supposed to look. They're supposed to be patchy. They're supposed to have active wildfire activity um, to keep them healthy. And so right now, when I say wildfire mitigation again, it's undoing all of that work. It's getting rid of that fuel um, that has built up over the years in your in your backyard, uh, in your neighbor's yards, like on the lot that you have all of this acreage. And that could mean, um, yeah, taking out trees, uh, taking out invasive species that are like really uh, fire prone. There's a lot of species that... Uh, basically burn from the inside out so they kind of explode um and spread fire much more quickly and so there's things like that uh that's kind of like a brief history of what we're doing and the mitigation efforts but there's a lot of things that we can do um that aren't even like defensible space related uh, in terms of just like having a green sign that alerts firefighters to come to your property you know like or or alerts for firefighters where they are in the event of a wildfire because green is like the best thing that you can see through wildfire smoke and like, uh, you know, all the red, but yeah, that was kind of a ramble, (laughs) but that's, that's everything that I think is necessary. Well, it was definitely an informative ramble. Like you definitely (laughs) tackled some common misconceptions there. So that's amazing. Um, quick question. Did you find that it was slower since you had to consider policy work? Because you you mentioned that you had to sort of undo some of the work that the government had done. And also, did you know that that was something that you would be focusing on when you, when you first dove into this project? Because I know for a lot of people, it's like work and policy is sort of like a, a side effect to just getting what they want out there and done and finished with. Well, I'll start off by saying that I haven't really like had to, I guess, work within any policy um it's something that i don't really want to do uh obviously i will if that means everything will be faster um but i haven't personally worked in policy and don't plan to um but policy is an issue uh in terms of wildfire and it's really an issue not because of the actual regulations themselves but because the regulations are different per state so for example in california they just passed a bunch of laws that says um, insurance companies have to disclose how they're pricing premiums based off of um, the people that are doing wildfire mitigation work. Uh, insurance is a big thing in California because a lot of companies are dropping out of California. They literally say, okay, these areas are too high risk for wildfire, and so we can't insure you, um, which puts a lot of people kind of on the back burner. 
Um, but one of the reasons for that is policy is, is people like the government is the insurance, the traditional insurance agencies, uh, I would say are heavily regulated. And so when prices go up, it takes years to actually change anything, anything, any of their policies. And then by the time they actually change it, it's time to change again. So it's a constant battle for insurance for sure. And that that's one of the biggest things in terms of policy. Um, but then the other side is just fire chiefs and fire marshals and um, like nonprofit regulations and all those things are different per state in terms of the things they want to see for a defensible space, in terms of the work that they think is more of a priority. I would say there's a general consensus in the fact that like if you have like wood piles near your house, get rid of them. <laughs> like there, there's a few things that people can all kind of all agree on that are like extremely high risk. Um, but yeah, like, there's, there's always something different that people want to see because it's not heavily regulated, the wildfire prevention industry. Um, and people are kind of just doing whatever they can. And that makes it hard to design a lot of things, at least in the beginning. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say that's the thing. So I was wondering, can you share any success stories or milestones that you've reached recently with Flora? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I think like the biggest thing is that we we have two pilots um, that we're doing in Napa. And while those are with HOAs, and I kind of mentioned before that they're slow, um, we're kind of coming to a close in terms of um, a lot of the things that we have to do for them. And in, in terms of our pilots, it's basically we do like a general assessment and then we work with the contractor to do like an in-person assessment, get the work done, like complete a budget and timeline for the HOA, and then uh, like basically create a maintenance plan for them afterwards. So it's addressing most of the root causes of the issue. And that's kind of like the pilot plan. So we're nearing the end of a lot of that. And we're working with Napa Firewise and their grant program to get a lot of the work funded. And that's the the biggest thing is just getting the work uh, funded so people can do more of the kind of like mitigation work. I think what uh, like a more interesting thing, though, is a lot of the experiments that we're doing on the side. Um, we recently joined BuildSpace. And so we're kind of like building in public uh, along with that. Um, but we've gotten a lot of interesting kind of feedback uh and recently we realized oh yeah like there's a lot of things that we have kind of looked over we've skimmed over in terms of what actually is the solution here and so a lot of it was kind of back to the drawing board of okay yeah like what does this look like um and the biggest thing that was staring us in the face that we kind of weren't um thinking too much about was cost um Obviously, that's like a big thing, but I've been in wildfire for two and a half years, and it was kind of just one of those things where I was like, yeah, this work is going to be expensive. There's no way to work around it. We just have to find a way to either better educate people or make the process easier to go through. And while those two things are important, the biggest prohibitor from uh, out of everything that we ever like talk to people about is either the work is too expensive or I forget, and then the work gets too expensive. Um, and it's all convoluted. So we are basically releasing this digital assessment tool. We're actually looking for beta testers right now to kind of, you know, iron out all the kinks, but yeah, we're releasing a digital assessment tool, um, to kind of figure out, you know, like what is the best procedure in in terms of doing things like that, in terms of getting it into people's hands. And then from there, 
a lot of it is, you know, how how do we like monetize it from there? Um, and we're still figuring out a lot of things, but the biggest thing is we have two pilots, they're coming to an end, and then um, doing a lot of experiments on the side, which are really exciting. Ah, I see. That sounds very thrilling. So, you know, congrats. That's a huge milestone. That's really, really exciting. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Since we're coming to a close, and this is our second last question, uh, let's shift things a bit to our listeners. So what advice would you give to students who are curious about the path of entrepreneurship or building a startup, but they, they don't know what their first step should be? I think trying to nail down first steps, especially in like the world of like startups and entrepreneurship and everything, really just revolves around the people that you spend the most time with. It, it's such a cliche to say, you know, you're the product of the five people you spend the most time with. But honestly, it is. Um, it is really true. Uh, I started TKS when it was still in quarantine. So um, all the people I was talking to were just like my friends from Vegas or like my family. And no one is really like entrepreneurship minded of my friends, like maybe one or two. And even then, like everyone is on a relatively traditional path in, in terms of all of my friend group and my family. Like even me taking a gap year was like unheard of to them. Like they, they were very scared for me. Um, but as soon as I got into TKS, it was all these people from all around the world that thought kind of similar to me. And made, it kind of like almost destigmatized the idea of taking a gap year and doing a startup um, just by listening to other people. So I think the biggest piece of advice in terms of people that want to get into it but don't know where to start is start talking to people and like kind of ingrain yourself into a community that is either like startup minded or is equally as curious as you obviously tks you guys know like is a pretty good program for that um and then after that it it will kind of write itself and honestly being a part of a community and talking about it will really solidify whether you do whether you do want to do it or not i went into tks thinking that i was going to be into like neuroscience or like nanotech or uh like like synbio was the biggest thing uh, and I did it for a couple of weeks. I did it like for a focus project and I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> um, and, you know, kudos to the people that do, but I, I just could not wrap my head around doing it. And I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't talking to people about it and like testing things on my own. So that would probably be my biggest piece of advice. Yeah, 100%. Your network and community is really valuable and having a like-minded network like TKS is really great support, but also gives mm -hmm. you a lot of opportunities and like awesome people to just talk to. To end mm -hmm. off, more generally, what are three takeaways or just general advice you want our listeners to walk away with from this episode? I would say I think it's really important to find a school of thought that works for you that you're okay with changing. I am a pretty sporadic person. I, I've i been nomadic for the last little bit, and I like a lot of change. I kind of thrive off of a lot of change, but, you know, I know my co-founder isn't like that, and if we both have the same school of thought in terms of how to run a startup and, like, how to get through the day, it would not be good for both of us, like, if we if we switched into each other's kind of, like, way of, way of uh, I guess, thinking, living, whatever. You know, so I think it's important to find a school of thought that works well for you, that keeps you productive, but also keeps you curious. And that's through exploration. 
So that kind of leads me to like my second point is just be someone that continuously learns. Um, I, I only really started continuously learning and like seeking out knowledge when I was 16. And it was, again, it was because I was in this environment that I couldn't control. And if you're in an environment where you can't control some aspects of it, which I didn't know it at the time, but I could have even been controlling different aspects of my life at that before 16. Um, if you're in an environment where you feel like that's not possible, there's there's always some kind of um, change in terms of knowledge that you can get or some kind of like system that you can uh, like organize that gets you a little bit further ahead of like where you want to be. So those are the biggest things. And then I think the third thing is just if you're doing something that you love and genuinely care about, it's going to make work a lot easier. Um, I think that's pretty cliche advice, but it is really the truth. Like I, I love building, um, I love building this company. I love being in climate. I love knowing that I am eventually going to help a lot of people and that this will be something that I can look back on and say, yeah, like I, I'm really proud of this. Um, and I'm really proud of the time that I spent on this with these people yeah, at this point, I still wake up in the day and feel like I'm like working, but it's much less so. I never have to drag myself out of bed. It's more of just like a, yep, like this is it's time to make this work <laughs> kind of thing, and that's how it should be. I, I think, um, you know, it's not going to always feel like you're never working, but I think that's a good thing. So that that'd be the advice. <laughs> and that was really well said, and I I love that idea of continuous learning and surrounding yourself with people who are equally as passionate about something as, as you know, as you are. It's really amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you on the Curious Minds podcast. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for having me. 